If you'd like to join me in Matthew chapter 17, our text this morning is uh, Matthew 17, 9 to 13. Matthew writes, And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. As we consider the the setting of these verses, we really have to go back into Mark 16. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in the north. He... Uh, Matthew writes about the confusion of the crowds. The crowds, Jesus said, who the people say that I am, and they had all kinds of ideas. Interestingly, their first idea was Elijah, but they guessed all kinds of things. Matthew writes about the revelation of Jesus' identity. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you didn't figure this out on your own, and nobody told you. God showed you this. Then we see uh, the revelation about Jesus' purpose. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the uh, elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. We see disagreement with that purpose. Peter dares to rebuke the Lord, took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's just Peter looking at the one he had just said is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but claiming to know the purpose of God more than Jesus. Uh, Jesus expresses his uh, unwavering obedience to the Father. He turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not sitting on your mind's interests, but man's interests. Uh, Jesus' obedience to the Father is absolutely unyielding. He never lost that focus And he said, anybody who does not have the Father's purpose in mind is ultimately satanic. He doesn't give any gray area. We want to give gray areas. Well, they've got a good heart. They're just in error. That doesn't help anybody. We've got to be on the side of Christ. And then he says that his disciples have to share that unyielding obedience. Verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, Let him do what I've done. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we don't follow Jesus down a different path than he walked. We followed the path he walked and we followed the way he walked. And then in the transfiguration in the first eight eight verses of chapter 17 is the revelation of Jesus' glory. He didn't lack that glory. He didn't give up the glory when he took on human flesh. He simply shielded it in, in his humanity. And he unveiled it. He, he exposed that glory to Peter, James, and John, just the three, and gave them a glimpse. At the end of that account, then, they began coming back down the mountain. He had taken them up onto for the transfiguration. 
And he gives his disciples a, a, a strange command. And then somehow that brings about a question from them about Elijah. So let's talk about the command. He says, tell no one. Verse 9, tell, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Keep this a secret. Don't even tell the other nine. Now, we saw this back in verse 20 after Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he warned the disciples, that the 12, that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now he tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody, even the other nine, what you've seen on the mountain. Why? Why? I think that the short answer is that the gospel is not complete at this point. The gospel is not that God took on human flesh. The gospel is not even that Jesus' glory was revealed in the transfiguration. The gospel is that God took on human flesh and became a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in victory over sin and death. He ascended to heaven. He is now interceding for his people and ruling over them. He is coming again to judge the wicked and to bring his own into eternity with him. And that sinners who trust him will be saved and have eternal life. That's the gospel. What could the disciples have preached after the transfiguration? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he's glorious. They didn't have enough to say. It's true that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's true. It's true that he, he bears the glory not only of God the son, but of a perfect sinless man which they saw. As wonderful as the transfiguration was, it's not enough. Nobody is saved by it. <coughs> what I find to be interesting is the transfiguration is mentioned obviously in just four places in Scripture. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's not mentioned in John. And it's mentioned by Peter in Second Peter when Peter says, Look, we didn't make this up. We're eyewitnesses of his glory. We were with him on the holy mountain. We heard the voice of the Father speaking out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But, Peter says, you know what I rest in? I rest in the fact that we have a scripture. I don't rest in my experience. I rest in the word that God has given us. That's my confidence. That's my certainty. If you read through the book of Acts and look at the, the sermons that are there, you will never see them mention the transfiguration. It simply doesn't come into the preaching of the gospel. The focus is always the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So these three men had a glimpse of Jesus' glory, but the fullness of that glory would only come through the suffering of the cross and the resurrection. Francis Schaeffer, decades ago, wrote a book called The God Who Is. It's a great book. But I think the title should have been The God Who Is and Does. It wasn't enough for Jesus to say, look, I'm God, I'm glorious. We're not saved by his glory. We're saved by his work. We're saved by his actions. God is the God who does. God manifests himself through his deeds, not just the simple fact of his existence. 
So God introduces the Ten Commandments this way in Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God says, I am the God who is and I am the God who does. Melchizedek says to Abraham after the battle of the kings on the plain, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 10, uh, this is the second generation who are getting ready to enter the land. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and fearsome things for you. He is, he does, he has done. And we see this in the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's true that God deserves all worship just for being God. It's also true that he wants us to know not just who he is, but what he has done. And he manifests and magnifies his glory through his works. So what we're seeing with say nothing to anybody until it's done is Jesus saying, me revealing who I am is not enough. I must accomplish salvation. And I wonder if perhaps, uh, I, I wonder if perhaps there's a connection to his temptation here. You just think through it with me. Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him. He tempts him three times. What's the third temptation? He showed him all of the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And he says to Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all of this. I will give you glory. And Jesus says, no, I have to earn it. When Peter says, it shall not happen to you, could it have been that what Peter meant was not only it shall not, but it need not You can have glory without the death, without the suffering. And Jesus says, I must. And even here, he says, you're not to set me up so that I receive the praise and the worship and the adulation of man before I have accomplished my suffering. That's why the sermon is called No Easy Path. Even Jesus didn't take the easy way. If the only thing necessary for our salvation was recognizing who Jesus is, the transfiguration would have been enough. Jesus would have unveiled his glory to these three men, and he would have said, go tell the world. But it's not enough. We're not saved by our knowledge of who God is, but by his work of redemption. So until the gospel's complete, the disciples are not to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 20, And until the gospel is complete, Peter, James, and John are not to tell anyone, even the other nine, that Jesus was transfigured and that they beheld his glory in a unique way. So that command to remain silent somehow raises a question about Elijah. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? There was something about the question that led to this or his command that led to this question. Now, according to uh, Jewish tradition, Elijah would personally return and do all of the hard corrective work 
before the Messiah came. To the point where in, in their belief system, when the Messiah came, everything would be so prepared, all the Messiah had to do was show up, climb the steps, and sit on the throne. That's one of the reasons that they thought maybe Jesus was Elijah, because Jesus was doing the hard work of correcting and confronting sin. These men had not just seen Elijah, they'd seen Moses as well. They had seen Jesus in his glory. But I want you to notice the question they ask. They don't ask, why then do the prophets say Elijah must come first? They ask, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That seems to lean not toward uh, theology and doctrine, but interpretation and tradition. And Jesus answers them in two parts with two good answers. First of all, he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. The first answer is, the scribes are essentially right. Now, when Jesus says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, he's not talking prophetically about a moment in his future. He's saying, this is the belief, this is the doctrine God has established, that Elijah will return. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. The scribes were basically right. The second part of Jesus' answer is the scribes are basically wrong. He says, But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. I skipped a phrase. I did that deliberately. I'm going to come back to it. The angel Gabriel said to the father of John the Baptist, when he was announcing John's birth, when Zechariah was in prayer, he will go before him. He, John, will go before him, the Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John's ministry. And it's the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Not that God was going to dig Elijah up and raise him up out of a box or send him back from heaven and have Elijah physically walking the earth, but that he would send one in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus seems to make reference to this in Matthew 21. He's speaking to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, in the, in the way of Elijah. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And when you saw that, you did not even regret not believing him. And then believing him. John comes and he preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he preached it to everybody. Everybody got the same message. From, from the most ignorant, poorest peasant to Herod the Great, or Herod Antipas. From the scribes and the Pharisees to the Roman soldiers. Everybody got the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees said, not, not talking to us. Sadducees said he's not talking to us. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people said he's not talking to us. The tax collectors said, oh, he's talking to me. 
prostitute said, he's talking to me. And then Jesus says that the, the, the chief priests and the elders, and I think that means then the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw these people repenting. And what did, what did they say? Not for me. It's good that they repented. Boy, they needed to repent. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17, 12, that the people are going to treat John any way that they wish and that they did. And so we know that a handful, just a handful, believed in John. In fact, uh, John, the brother of James, and Andrew, the brother of Peter, were disciples of John the Baptist. John 1 says that they were disciples of John. They were following him, and they saw Jesus, and John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, and they began following Jesus. So at least two of Jesus' disciples had been John's disciples. Many just ignored him. They just ignored him. Have you heard about the guy out in the wilderness? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, they say people are being, they're having their lives changed by going and hearing this guy preach and be baptized. Well, who's they? And they just ignored him. A lot of people criticized him and vilified him. Herod Antipas had him put to death. What's interesting is if you read that account, it says that Herod had arrested John, but he didn't put him to death because he was afraid of the people. Because the people thought John was a prophet. He doesn't say Herod was afraid to put John to death because the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought he was a prophet. And it's an argument from silence. I'm speculating here. But there's at least the possibility that the leaders of Israel were happy Herod had arrested John. It doesn't say that. But I think it fits the context. So the people were so committed to their traditions regarding Elijah that when God sent a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah, they ignored him. In other words, they're so focused on him that they couldn't see him when he arrived. They missed the very one they claimed to be looking for. Now at the end of verse 12, Jesus says, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And again, that's, that's why the sermon is called No Easy Path. Jesus said that he was going to be treated just like John was, and he was. He was believed by a small number. He was ignored by many. He was ignored by many. And we could think to ourselves, how could anybody ignore him? Well, there, there's, there's no hint at all that Jesus traveled or, or served in the very south of Israel in what's called the Negev. That's where... Uh, Carrion is, the, the city of Carrion, that's where Judas Iscariot was from, was in the deep south. There's no hint he ever went there. Jesus traveled to Jerusalem during his ministry, and uh, um, Jericho, and Bethany, and he was in there. He was on the road to Emmaus. He was in Samaria, but there's never a hint that he traveled through Judah, we never see him in Bethlehem. We never see him in the other cities. His ministry, by and large, was contained in Galilee. So you've got a lot of people living in the other areas that are simply ignoring him. And Jesus, of course, was criticized and vilified by others, and he was eventually executed. I have to tell you, I've, I, I often have an emotional reaction when I think about the rejection of Jesus. It makes me angry that people could hear him and see him and even be blessed by him with a healing or being fed and then reject him. But I 
I don't pretend that had I been there, I would have been one of the 12. The great likelihood is I would have been one of those ignoring, vilifying, criticizing, or calling for his death. I'm no better than they were. So we have to remember that there's no easy path. We have to remember that Jesus' suffering was not the unfortunate result of a plan gone wrong. The Father didn't send his son to earth with a plan A, in case everybody believes, and a plan B, in case they don't. And in fact, God didn't have a plan A. He simply had the plan. It was the only plan. Not long before he was crucified, that last week of his life, Jesus says in John 12, Now my soul has become dismayed. The man Christ Jesus is anticipating his crucifixion. And he says, my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation says he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. The, the book in Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, there's a book of life that has the names of all of the saints in it. And that book was written before the foundation of the earth, and it is the book of the Lamb who was slain. So Jesus is the Lamb slain before creation. There's only one plan. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered over to death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28 says that Herod, Pilate, the Romans, and the Jews did exactly what God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. And the resurrection was just as predetermined, just as foreknown, just as predestined. Jesus doesn't say, notice, in verse 9, he doesn't say, tell the vision to no one unless the sun rises from the dead. He says, tell the vision to no one until the sun rises from the dead. He has no question. He has no doubt. It's no easy path, but there's an end point in glory. There's an end point in glory. In his humanity, Jesus dreaded the cross. His soul was dismayed by it. In the garden, he prayed that he could avoid it. But he also knew that that was the way that God had determined, and he knew that the cross and the grave was not the end. The empty tomb's not the end either. Linda and I were talking on our way down from Creighton this morning that our gospel presentations are often simply based on man is a sinner, Jesus died, and rose again, and if you believe, you can be saved. This is the end point for Jesus. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the end point. So as Jesus is conducting his ministry, that's where, what he sees off in the distance. When I was learning to ride a motorcycle safely and learning how to dodge traffic and I went through some training and, and that kind of thing, to learn how to manipulate the motorcycle, they made it very clear, what you look at is where you'll go. 
And I actually had it borne out practically. Not too long after that, I was on 13th Street heading south, and a car started to pull out two, two blocks in front of me. Just saw his nose at the intersection, and he stopped. And I got up, and I got to the next block, and I just started thinking to myself, he's going to go. And sure enough, I was about 50 feet away, and this guy just pulled out in front of me. And because of my training, I was able to whip around the back of him and just never get close to him. If, but that's because I stopped looking at him. And I looked at my way of escape, and I looked my way through the problem. If I had looked at the car and tried to steer around, I would have hit the car. Jesus is not looking at the cross. Jesus is not not looking at the grave. He's not looking at the empty tomb. He's looking at you and me being with him in eternity. That's his point. The path leads there, and it was not an easy path for him. And it's not an easy path for us. Everything else is just a link in that chain. His holiness, his righteousness, his miracles, his teachings, his arrest, his sufferings and torture, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, the giving of the Spirit, his intercessory prayer for us now, his lordship over the church right now, the judgment to come. Those are all links in the chain that lead to that final point of him being intimately joined with his people for all eternity. He did not have an easy path. We don't have an easy path either. So let's bring this home. I want you to keep two things in mind. First of all, thinking about the Jews and Elijah, it's very possible to have a tradition that is so strong that it obscures the thing that the tradition's about. The Jews have been waiting for Elijah since well before Jesus was born. Today, conservative Jews are looking for Elijah. They believe that when a baby boy uh, is circumcised, Elijah is there in the spirit, approving. They set off in an, an empty chair during their Sabbath meal in case Elijah happens to come. They often have an empty chair at the Passover meal in case Elijah decides to come. At the end of the Passover, uh, the people in the house will open the door. Remember, Passover is the celebration of God passing over his people and and, uh, excusing them from the plague of death to fall upon Egypt. They put blood on the doorway and they stayed in the house. At the end of Passover, conservative Jews will open the door and stand and look at the world that's being judged. And they believe that at that moment, Elijah's with them. And they're looking for him to come back to announce the Messiah. And they missed him. It's quite possible for us today to have a tradition that obscures the point of the tradition. I I was speaking with with, uh, Gary right before the service. We were talking about acoustics. And the first church where I led worship uh, we we moved into on Sundays we moved into a basketball gym a high school gym and the elders insisted we have a full band we had drums we had two guitars we had bass we had a keyboard we have about six singers and we had a sound guy who was a saint this had to be a sanctifying perspective for him because there simply was no way to get decent sound. You've got, you've got an echo chamber. There's just, you can't make it work. And I remember speaking to the elders at times and saying, can't we just do a guitar and piano and two vocalists? No, 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 we, boy, we, but it's, it was a nightmare. 
And every week somebody was coming up and saying, this is too loud, that's too loud. But if you move 10, 15 feet that way, you can't hear it. What had happened? Well, what happened was this, this idea of worship had been obscured by the tradition of a band. And rather than just treating it in a practical way, the tradition actually got in the way. You and I have to be so careful not to let a tradition do that. That's why the, the motto of the, the Protestant church early on and, and should remain, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. It's not that we're always getting it wrong and we've always got to correct it. It's that we, we're always in danger of drifting. And we, we just need to always be ready to correct the course. So much easier to correct the course a day after you step off than a year after you step off. So let's, let's try to remember to safeguard ourselves against traditions that get in the way of the truth. The second thing I want you to remember is the gospel's complete. I don't know if anybody's ever mentioned that to you. Jesus said, don't say anything to anybody, but we can. We can preach it, we can teach it, we can share it, we can bear testimony, we can bear witness, however you want to put it. We're free to proclaim the gospel. This age is called the church age. Um, Pastor Justin's got a, a much greater awareness of church history than I do, but perhaps it'd be better to call it the gospel age. This is what we do. This, it's the gospel time. It struck me, though, and again, Linda and I are talking on the way down this morning, that much evangelism simply focuses on, you're a sinner, Jesus died, if you trust him, he'll save you. And maybe what we should begin with is, Jesus' aim is to have a people that he is with for eternity. Sin is in the way of that. He's answered that obstacle. He's leveled that obstacle. And this is how he did it. And this is why he did it. And if you'll put your faith in him, he will join you to him. My, my prayer is that we would be able to proclaim the gospel in the full confidence that it's the power of God for salvation. And to understand when somebody disagrees, when they argue about it, that's their own sinful flesh in the way. And we shouldn't modify it to suit them. There's nothing more meaningful to a Christian than knowing that the atoning work of Christ is complete. There's nothing to do. There's, there's, there's nothing to do. He's accomplished it all. He didn't say it has begun on the cross. He said it's finished. Jesus on the cross didn't make salvation possible. He saves. The Father, we thank you for your love for us. It's so easy for us to have traditions that get in the way of what the tradition is about. Please show us where that's true, if that's true for us. Give us the humility and the, the confidence in your grace to confess those things and to abandon those things. And Father, I thank you that we've got full permission now to share the gospel with everybody. I ask that you would grant us opportunities to do that. I ask that you would help us recognize those opportunities and take advantage of them. I ask that you would help us not be discouraged when, if and when, mostly when, people are not receptive. 
Some come to Christ after hearing the gospel two or three times. Some hear it thousands of times before they come. I thank you that we're not in charge of them coming. We're just here to proclaim the message and to leave you with the results. But Lord, we do ask for the fruit. You said the fields were white for harvest. That remains mostly true. Some fields are perhaps whiter than others, but there's a harvest throughout this age. There's nothing more exciting than seeing somebody respond to the gospel and believe, and there are few things more discouraging than sharing Christ and having no response. And so for the sake of our encouragement and for the sake of lost souls, would you save as we proclaim Christ? Those souls belong to you, but would you allow us to partner with you in bringing them to the Savior? We recognize that Jesus did not walk an easy path and that he has not laid out an easy path for us. But fortunately, it's the same path. And it's a way that he has gone himself, and it's a way that he has taken tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people through the decades and centuries and we can safely trust the Lord Jesus to walk that path with us. And I thank you for that. We lift up those who are not here with us this morning and ask that you would bless them, strengthen them where they are, and encourage them. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.